0: The idea that somehow the chairman of British Telecom, or indeed anyone else, was in any doubt that we were going to introduce a windfall tax, I find rather hard to say. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her. Millions of others who never met her, but felt they knew her, will remember her.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean sure. I, I wasn't going to go what, at first, because you like, you're going, so. going to get slagged off for going one way, the other one I'll slagged off for not going, but I told my mum yesterday, my mum said that I better go that there is no question
0: of Sinn Féin participating in any talks whatever unless there is a clear, credible, and unequivocal ceasefire.
1: Hi, and welcome back to episode three of Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. This is installment number three, where we finally get to talk about Britpop, and I'm going to try and keep Chloe from making the whole episode about her favourite band, Pulp, led by Jarvis Cocker, but I will let her introduce us with a little story that I found absolutely fascinating about the connection between Jarvis Cocker, the lead singer of Pulp, and the Greek government.
0: Okay, so Pulp, yes, my absolute favourite band, um... So Paul was best known for their nineteen ninety five hit "Common People," which famously in in which famously Jarvis Cocker tells the story of his failed attempt to seduce a young Greek student at St Martin's College in London. A couple of years ago, a story emerged that the woman in question may in fact have been Denae Stratou. I apologise for my probably my mispronunciation of a Greek name, who is now the wife of Yanis Varoufakis, who is the former Greek finance minister under the Syriza government during most, especially during the Eurozone crisis of 2010-2012. And I think this story caught my imagination and I think this is why it caught Emma's as well because it links Jarvis Cocker, who I think is, you know, the, the great bard of class in the 1990s in the UK, with Varoufakis who is an important figure and a figurehead for the European left today by way of his wife who was you know and this is where people make the connection who was who is the daughter of a wealthy Greek industrialist and who in fact did study sculpture at St
1: Martin's College. I guess which is which is our kind of roundabout way of saying that we think the culture of the 1990s is kind of inextricably linked both to the politics of the 1990s but also to the global politics of today but I after after saying that Chloe I have to confess that in the 1990s I myself wasn't following Britpop particularly closely I was much more married to the Spice Girls okay which Spice Girl were you in well, I mean, having the same name as an actual Spice Girl was a distinct advantage. So I, I kind of had my Spice Girl allocated to me. What about you? I think if I had to be one,
0: then I was sporty. But I I actually wasn't a huge fan of the Spice Girls in the 90s, which, I mean, it, yeah, my my music taste doesn't make sense until you understand that I have two two older brothers who are much cooler than me. So they kind of imprinted their taste in music, in music on me as a child. Although I've got to say I came to Pulp on my
1: own. Yeah, and Pulp is is pretty different to the Spice Girls.
0: Yeah, the Spice Girls were, of course, one of the first great manufactured pop bands who set out a blueprint for what pop music would look like for, I guess, really the next 20 years or so. I think... They were quite, they, you know, they are quite culturally significant because they were also, you know, the first real explicit attempt to form a band around individual personalities. Um, also, I think that they were quite significant figures in the history of contemporary feminism, although perhaps, I don't know, that they were a very positive influence in that regard.
1: It's funny, isn't it? Because at the time they, they certainly uh, felt like one, you know, at least to a kind of nine or ten-year-old girl. And they certainly framed themselves that way. But we've, we've since done a bit of rethinking about the, a girl power.
0: Yes. Well, Jerry Halliwell called Margaret Thatcher the first Spice Girl, which I think says enough about an issue that we've spoken about before on this podcast, which is the problem of a feminism that associates itself with power rather than equality.
1: That's right, and I, I guess on that note, I suppose for somebody who who wasn't and and isn't immersed in it, if we switch from the Spice Girls to Britpop, I kind of I see Britpop as as quite um, masculine, as quite male dominated. Is that fair, Chloe?
0: No, that's absolutely right, and that's especially if you think about Britpop in the terms that a lot of people did, and a lot of people especially in, say, the music industry and the music press wanted you to, which was as basically a competition between
1: Blur and Oasis. Okay, then, so I guess I'll ask my, my, my big question, is, which is what what is Britpop, how do we define it, and, and why are we talking about it?
0: Well, that's the thing. If you're talking about Britpop, you can't really talk about it as a musical movement because the bands who came to prominence in that period were so different – more than anything, I think it was a piece of slick marketing and it was also a really useful description for this moment of incredible cultural confidence in the UK as it emerged from Thatcherism and towards, you know, this very modern future that Tony Blair was promising. I think I spoke about, okay, in a couple of instalments ago about the reception that Tony Blair hosted for the music industry where Noel Gallagher turned up and was all chummy with the Prime Minister.
1: Okay, so that, that that speaks to our kind of connection between culture and politics in the 1990s. So Oasis, does that lead me to think that Oasis is kind of aligned with the halls of power in the 1990s?
0: Oh, I think that's probably a little bit of a stretch, but I do think that the Britpop and the central battle of Britpop, which I'm putting in air quotes between Blur and Oasis, was kind of a... It was quite a useful exercise in demonstrating what Blair's Britain looked like. Because, on the face of it, Blur in this battle, you know, they were, it, was, it was kind of a proxy class war. So, Blur were representing the southeast university educated middle class who, you know, could be kind of seen as sort of voyeuristic and laddish. On the other hand, you had Oasis who were representing the north, who were mouthy, working class, aggressive, also intensely hopeful. I see this as kind of a way of displacing, but also sort of almost neutering the class tensions that Blair's Britain was really keen to suppress. Very famously, one of the a Labour MP in the 1990s, John Prescott, he said, "We're all middle class now." And Britpop, and especially this battle of Britpop between Blur and Oasis, was a way of saying, at one level, that. That class still exists, class is still a significant force in British life, but also it also kind of reduced class to stereotypes, which I don't in, in, which I don't think is a very useful way of understanding the UK.
1: Yeah, okay, because it's kind of, as you say, it's reducing class and, and deeply nuanced politics to a kind of stereotype. And you obviously think there is a, a better way of understanding the UK at this time. Yes,
0: people will often ask who won the Battle of Britpop. Was it Blur or Oasis? My answer to that is always Pulp. And the reason I say that is that I find Pulp much more interesting because their perspective is much more ambiguous, it's much more insightful, and it's also much more critical of what class in Britain and culture in Britain looked like in the 1990s.
1: Okay, so I guess I have to confess that beyond my absolute favourite memory of my wedding being everybody dancing their little hearts out to common people by pulp. I actually don't know much about them or about Jarvis Cocker. So Chloe, please enlighten me. Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. So Jarvis Cocker formed pulp in 1978. So that's the first clue as to why I think they're really interesting because they were formed well before the great, you know, the great heights of Britpop. And during the 1980s, they were a spectacularly unsuccessful band. But by 1992, 1994, they started to get some traction with their album His and Hers. And then, of course, they released Common People in 1995, which absolutely
1: exploded. To.
0: So, I said before that Common People tells the story of Jarvis Cocker's attempts to seduce the rich, uh, the rich Greek daughter of an industrialist while they're studying together at St Martin's College, which I have to confess is kind of, kind of under, underplays the anger of this song. So. It's, you know, you know it, Emma, as a great party tune, but if you listen to it carefully when you're not drunk at 2am at your at your wedding, then you'll find that it is an incredibly angry song. And it's a song that is incredibly angry at, you know, this sort of, at class, you know, this, this phenomenon of class tourism and the really reductive ways that people are starting to look at class in, you know, what were on the face of it, the affluent 1990s. Another reason why I think it's interesting is because it reminds us that while, of course, this song is very famously set in an an August institution of the London art world. Britain is not London. Jarvis Cocker, you know he always speaks and sings with this, you know this very thick Sheffield accent. Britain and nor is nor is Britain necessarily the North. Britain is also its regions. It's a much more complicated place than you know the, highly affluent, financialised London of the 1990s that we're more familiar familiar with from, say, you know, the movies of
1: Richard Curtis. Okay, so Pulp is kind of, I guess, pushing back against this image of a kind of wealthy, cultured London being the totality of Britain.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and also it's as a band, and Jarvis in particular, quite suspicious of the decadence of the 1990s and the promise of Blairism. So after Common People, which was a massive hit, they pop kind of went into a bit of a retreat and in 1998 they released their album This Is Hardcore, which I, I love, but which, wasn't, which was received with some befuddlement by critics and by the public. Because it was an incredibly dark album and unfortunately for some for, for one reason or another, I suspect because it was too dark, they took a track, they were they didn't include one track on the album, which I think tells us a lot about Blair's Britain, which was called Cocaine Socialism. Sure.
1: so that's that's quite the title cocaine socialism what what do they mean by that Chloe? well so this song
0: it tells again it tells a story Jarvis Cocker is a great storyteller in modern pop music and it's about kind of a Jarvis surrogate figure who gets invited to to hobnob with the uh, the elites of the government so you don't, need to, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to be a cultural studies PhD to read into that that he's talking about the Blair government. So what it was, it was really damning Blairism and the cheapness of the promises that it had made to people and particularly working-class people like Jarvis Cocker. This was also quite prescient. In 2006, Jarvis released a solo single which was very delicately titled Running the World, and in 2006, when you know Tony Blair was still in power, it kind of, it almost sank without a trace. But it's a song that has been kind of revived over the last over the last few months, especially in the wake of the Labour Party's electoral loss in December in December 2019. It's also a song that kind of accompanied me in the first few weeks of lockdown as kind of a perverse bit of comfort. And we won't play it because the lyric is extremely explicit. Except to say that it is absolutely damning of capitalism and of the banality of political elites who, you know, a lot of people would say have really left us all behind over the last 30 years, and that's something that started with Blairism.
1: Okay, so I I mean, I guess I can kind of see why those songs don't go down particularly well, because when they're released, there's not, I guess there's not the appetite for that kind of analysis. So I guess I'm wondering then, you know, what does Pulp's kind of varied... Success, their, their enormous popularity, followed by kind of falling into obscurity for a while. What does that tell us then about Britpop and and culture at this time?
0: I think it actually tells us a few things that are that sort of outlast the nineteen nineties and that are still really relevant today. The first of which is that great critical culture doesn't always sell, which then raises the question of how how that is to be supported and how that is to flourish and retain its integrity. So I said before that Pulp were, you know, they were formed in 1978 and they were for a good decade an incredibly unsuccessful band. And I would argue that they were in that sense they, you know, because they were formed in 1978, they were kind of the last great working class band in the in, in Britain in the sense that they were one of the last bands that was able to survive on what was compared to now a relatively generous provision from social welfare so they were they were a band that could survive on the dole and they could use the dole and you know and and a low wage as kind of a basic payment that would enable unsuccessful artists to experiment and fail over the course of a whole decade and in that way become much more interesting when they did come to succeed there's this Statistic that gets that gets thrown around in British music circles all the time about the gross proportion of bands who in the UK who um, whose members went to public schools public schools in the UK being the equivalent of our private schools in Australia which
1: so unnecessarily confusing I know I
0: know just abolish them <laughs> um, but you know but that the arts is becoming. Is, the, is, the arts is very much becoming the province of the wealthy and the entitled and people who do have a safety net in place. And I think that that's not necessarily, they're not necessarily the conditions in which interesting art and critical culture will thrive. And that's absolutely an issue that's relevant to the present and is relevant here in Australia, where we are seeing a lot of artists really struggling because they have been, some would argue deliberately, excluded from, from schemes like JobKeeper.
1: Okay, Chloe, so as, as we wrap up this, this episode three on the United Kingdom, it's clear to me that you think that Jarvis Cocker and Pulp are, are some of the good guys of, of the UK in the 1990s. Who, who have survived and- today,
0: absolutely, yes, I, I agree with that. Jarvis Cocker is now hosting a domestic disco on Saturday nights on Instagram, which I'm really sad to miss because it happens at like 6am here, so which is not disco time for me, it's <laughs> dog walking time.
1: <laughs> it's definitely not disco time. Okay, so Jarvis has survived the 1990s. We we said early in the opening that, that Fran Drescher, aka the nanny, has not survived. She's degenerated into 5G conspiracy. Who, who else are the bad guys out of this?
0: Um, I I think we've got to say that Tony Blair has not has not done his reputation any wonders, especially in his recent interventions in the Labor Party politics, which I think only show his total lack of understanding of how politics works today um another one I'd add while we're talking about music because we didn't get there in this
1: episode is Gary Barlow from take that of course take that we we missed take that I'm not too sad about that I have to say. <laughs> no Gary Barlow who is now a notorious tax evader yeah which again kind of puts paid to that kind of Blairite assumption that um People will pay their taxes and then we can have capitalism with a heart, which I think, you know, the situation we find ourselves in today suggests was kind of a naive dream. So on that characteristically optimistic note, uh, we might leave it there for episode three. We hope you'll join us next week when we delve into some pretty heavy issues that we've foreshadowed, I think, in this episode, which is essentially war. It's about military interventionism across the world in the 1990s. So we hope you'll join us then. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT
0: University. Original music by Stuart Cullen.